Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, now the changes have been made in Hockey Canada, how can the new leadership win the confidence of Canadians back? Was imposing the Emergency Act a justified action or a last resort? Well, Canadians deserve to know, and that inquiry gets underway tomorrow. And could Ontario's next natural gas plants also be the last gas plants built in this province? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hockey Canada, of course, uh, jumping all over us right now with the news that uh, broke yesterday morning uh, that the entire board of directors have uh, resigned and stepped down immediately. It's a change of direction, certainly, for Hockey Canada. The organization announced that all of the board of directors are stepping aside. Uh, as Global's Brianna Carnegie reports, it comes as Hockey Canada remains under scrutiny for its handling of well, past sexual assault allegations. After facing repeated calls, Hockey Canada now says it recognizes the urgent need for new leadership and perspectives. CEO Scott Smith and the full board of directors are stepping down to make room for a new slate of directors. An interim management committee will take over until a new board is voted in later this year. Callers tell us it's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. It's a good start. It's a good start, but I do believe the, the players should be named. In May, Hockey Canada settled a lawsuit by a woman who alleged she was sexually assaulted by eight hockey players, including members of the 2018 World Junior Team. It was later revealed a fund made up in part with players' registration fees was used to pay for that settlement. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So where do we go from here? Uh, I mean, this is a, a part of our culture, the Canadian culture, playing hockey, children's hockey, uh, you know, organized hockey just about every level. And uh, it's got a black eye right now. A lot of questions. And by the way, we're going to open the lines up uh, a little bit later on, just a few minutes, to give you an opportunity uh, to weigh in on this and tell us what you think should happen going forward. Uh, first of all, though, I want to talk to our next guest. Dr. Ann Pegararo is the co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. Uh, doctor, thank you, first, first of all, for jumping in with us today. Really appreciate it. On a very busy day for you, I'm sure. Yeah, it's good to be back talking with you about this, Bill. Well, first and foremost, let's let's talk about your reaction to the announcements yesterday. Uh, we, we had the interim uh, manager, of course, leave. Ms. Skinner left, of course, over the weekend after some uh, rather rocky times, I guess, during the committee hearings last week. Uh, and then the whole board jumped down after this. Was that a surprise to you? I don't think it was a surprise. I think probably like a lot of other Canadians, my re reaction was finally, you know, finally they've uh, listened, they've read the room and realized they needed to make some real change. So that's happening, uh, which raises even more questions, I guess, in many people's minds now uh, about process here. Now, they've already outlined a process uh, about how they're going to select the board. Uh, there's going to be applications made, certainly, a vetting of those applications. And it's going to be sometime, I guess, just before Christmas, before we actually get a board. Is that, is that a comfortable timeline for you? Um, you know, they pushed it back. They put out their, uh, right after um, the, the testimonies last week, they put out their call for board, and, and normally they'd be doing this in November, and they pushed it back a month. And I'm I'm guessing because they expect they're going to get a high volume of people wanting to uh, put their names forward. Um, but it does leave them in a bit of um, a limbo situation for the next sort of three months, right? And, and um, I think what's key here is this interim management committee that they've sort of announced. And we don't know much about it. Well, that's one of the, the question marks that we have at this stage. Uh, it seems as if it's going to go on as business as usual here for the short term. I mean, you know, hockey season's already started, of course, in many rinks and in many communities. Uh, Ms. Skinner's comments the other day to the committee seemed to suggest that, well, if we leave, hockey pretty much shuts down. Well, that's not going to happen, is it? 
No, I mean, we all know that the lights on the local arena stay on because of volunteers and coaches and parents and municipal uh, employees. It doesn't have much to do with Hockey Canada. And I think those comments really showed how out of touch with the grassroots uh, side of the game Hockey Canada really is. So this, the, the process of getting a new board is one thing. We'll talk about that, in, I guess, in greater detail in just a second. Uh, the overriding question that I have, and I think an awful lot of people have based on the amount of uh, emails and uh, texts that I've received on this over the last little while, is uh, what about the investigation? I mean, you know, it's one thing for these people to step down, but I, the question is, is how long has this been going on and how extensive is this? I don't think we really have a clear picture of that, do we? No, we don't, and, and I'm hoping we will, but... Uh... You know, I have more hope that we're going to get the details given how long it took them to make change. If they had immediately uh, made the change we were all crying for, I think we wouldn't be talking about this anymore. So it's keeping the light on it. We know the hearings are going to continue. Um, The Senate hearings, the MPs are going to keep asking questions. So I do think we're going to get more details, um, but it's certainly taking a long time to sort of hear more about the investigation in particular into that one incident. Do we have to name names here or should they name names? Yeah, you know, I think we all want to know. Uh, I think we got to watch the legalities around that, not being a lawyer as to, you know, can you name names of the of the athletes uh, who were involved without criminal charges? I don't know. But I, I do think, uh, you know, there should be some statements from, from Hockey Canada about these individuals not being able to participate anymore uh, in, in anything that's sanctioned by Hockey Canada, at least. And that, it, it gets a little messy at, at that point, though, doesn't it, Doctor? Simply because... Uh, the, the, the incident, of course, that occurred in London, Ontario, uh, we're told that a number of those players that were allegedly involved in that incident are playing in the National Hockey League right now. And, and I know the NHL says they're doing some investigation. So uh, I, I guess what we're hoping to see here is some sort of convergence of all these investigations uh, that are ongoing right now with London police, with the, uh, you know, hockey, the NHL and others to find out exactly what happened here and, and, and get some ideas to who may be responsible for these actions. Yeah, I do think we'd like to see that. Um, I'm not hopeful that they'll all come together because they're all at cross purposes. I think the NHL's investigation would not be the same as what the police are trying to do um, from a criminal side. So uh, whether they'll come together or not, or whether uh, we'll find out bits and pieces from each one and have to still stitch it together ourselves uh, uh, as we listen, um, yet to be seen. Well, and we saw that with the Chicago Blackhawks uh, incident, didn't we, uh, some months ago. Uh, it just seemed to me as, yeah, there was finally an investigation, but it seemed more of a damage control exercise than it was to, to actually get to the truth. Yeah, that's what I would expect from the NHL's investigation, to be honest. I, I wouldn't see them pursuing um, any sort of actual action against these individuals because they weren't in the NHL at that time. So I think that's going to be their point. I would hope that the Hockey Canada investigation would be would be different than that and actually have sanctions for the players and you know the, the criminal side would, would rest with the London police. Let's let's talk about how this organization is supposed to work, Doctor. And clearly, th- there was a breakdown someplace, uh, if there was ever established a chain of command here. But I mean, this is an organization that's been around for a while, and uh, the, the the overriding governing body, of course, uh, for all the provinces with their own boards, many of whom, of course, have already distanced themselves from Hockey Canada. Uh, do these guys have to blow this whole thing up or can they just tweak this or is there a, 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 a structure in place right now that would satisfy uh, what needs to be done here? I do think they need to make some changes into their organizational structure for sure. I think what we saw happen here was a board that uh, wasn't fully engaged 
and also was maybe a little bit too cozy with the uh, CEO um, and so didn't have that oversight, right? When, when you sit on volunteer boards, your job is to have general oversight and not be close to the uh, the staff. You're supposed to be doing the fiduciary responsibilities. And I think that, that relationship got way too close. I think they need to look at how they select their board. Yes, it comes from members and hockey organizations. I think they need some independent directors on that board as well to start giving it a bit more teeth in, in, in the organization. Some names have come forward, and it's it's way too early, I guess, to speculate uh, since we're, as you say, just at the beginning of this process. But uh, names like Sheldon Kennedy, of course, who is well-versed in some of the things that have, uh, have occurred here, uh, sexual abuse and things of this nature. Uh, do we need people like that, that 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 can look at both sides of an issue like this? Uh, yeah, I think we need some people with, um, you know, intimate knowledge of, of both hockey and, unfortunately, in Sheldon's case, the abuse that happens inside the sport. I think we need individuals who are, are working hard to make hockey more inclusive. Um, there's some names like individuals with the Hockey Diversity Alliance, like Akeem Alou, and uh, and I think you know there's individuals who are working from other areas of inclusion, like Brock McGillis around LGBTQ. So we need people who are already trying to make this change in hockey. But we also need some voices from outside the sport to really sort of be the check and balance as well. Uh, I, I, Dr. Haley Wickenheiser's name has come up a few times too, but and so there's it's, there's a, a number of names here who I, I think it would resonate with people, and it, 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 I think it speaks to the fact that uh, it just seem as you mentioned that there seemed to be a, a single mindedness to this board right now, uh, as opposed to the diversity that probably was absolutely necessary to maybe handle this issue better. Absolutely, yeah, and there's some other great uh, you know women out there, Therese Brousseau and Daniel Savigno. I think there's some women who've been involved. Uh, with the women's team, who's not part of this scandal uh, over the years as storied athletes and, and now as, you know, some of the top hockey minds in women's hockey. I think there are some great individuals like that that should be there. And again, those are from outside of what we saw, this insular sort of boys club that's been running the organization. How deeply should this investigation go uh, to find out who was doing what? I mean, we heard stories, some of them substantiated, some not. Uh, about lavish trips, uh, expense account padding. Uh, the, as you mentioned, these are volunteers, uh, but they had access to money clearly, and uh, you know, buying expensive rings every time a Canadian team won a national or an international championship, as if they had something to do with it. Uh, they, they certainly, you know, feather their own nests in. There's, I would think, have to be a discussion, or at least part of the the overhaul has to be a discussion about responsibilities and and, and who does what and and who's responsible for this and and you know, dipping into the till if, if necessary. Yeah, I think that for sure, going forward, there has to be a complete no remuneration, no gift policy for anybody who sits on the board um, because that definitely uh, muddies the water around decision making. Uh, whether we're going to see a full investigation into what the board's received in the past, I think um, I think that should be part of their governance review that they have ongoing. If we don't hear from that from Justice Cromwell, who's doing that, then the organization itself needs to do that investigation. Now, neither you nor I are lawyers, of course, as we've mentioned, Doctor, but but there is going to be an investigation here, and there there, there could be a misuse of of funds. Uh, we certainly know, of course, that they at least dipped into uh, some of that money that was uh, used for registration fees. Uh, to, to silence some of the people that were bringing allegations forth, and uh, that is a, a concern. Um, I don't know whether that's illegal or immoral or both or either, uh, but we I think to clear people's minds and to get a clear understanding of what's going on, uh, there has to be some clarity and some investigation into that too, doesn't there? I do. I do think we need to know how that came about, 
how did they uh, make those decisions to put uh, player registration fees to this purpose in inside Hockey Canada um, so that a clear board policy uh, can be set that it won't happen again and that um, you know clear decision-making parameters are set for how player fees money is used, how sponsor money is used, how government money is used so that um, you know we don't end up here again with all these questions that are unanswered. And, and with that in mind, let's, let's let's face it, this organization has been tainted, certainly. Uh, the reaction that we've seen from coast to coast to coast right now has been utter disgust from parents uh, who feel as if, you know, their funds have been misused in situations like this. I've heard, and I'm sure you have, Doctor, over the last couple of weeks especially, uh, from a number of parents who simply said, I'm not, I'm not registering my kid this year. This is a, an organization that just doesn't have their act together. How do you how do you get confidence back? How do you win the confidence of of the Canadian people back in a situation like this? Well, there certainly needs to be a transition to strong, transparent leadership, and I think that starts with the board members and that the new board members, and they're going to select a CEO. That CEO, to me, has to be somebody who is above reproach, whether they're from sport or from hockey or from outside, they need to be seen as a trustworthy individual who we know that the decisions and the information they're sharing is coming uh, at us that's clear and honest. I think that's the, the place they need to start that's very visible. On the other side, they've got to start rebuilding relationships with all of their member organizations at the community level um, to be able to start being, again, transparent with those groups so that they can build trust back as well. Uh, let's talk about the corporate sponsorships, many of whom, of course, have, have cut ties with Hockey Canada. Uh, some suspended, others have simply said outright, like Canadian Tire, that no, we're out of here altogether. Uh, how do you win those people back? I mean, just change, new faces and around the board is, is not going to be enough for those people. I mean, there's a, a cultural change that has to happen, I think, uh, to, I guess, make something clear to these people that okay maybe it's time to go back in there clearly their hearts are into this i mean they've been supporting minor hockey for years in this country and it's not because of a a, a lack of of passion i guess for this that's still there uh they're just upset with the way this organization's run uh they need that money uh to make this operation work we've known that for quite some time Uh, how do how do you make it comfortable for those organizations to pony up money again well, I think that uh, some of them won't come back. Uh, to be honest, I think the, the relationships will take a long time to build back. We do have some sponsors who are still supporting the women and para teams, and I think yeah. that's the place you start building those relationships again. And then, you know, if you're trying to give sponsors a say in what's going on, I would think about developing programs that are starting to educate players around consent, around respectful behavior, um, and that actually start to change the culture as opposed to just develop the game of hockey it might be places that sponsors would want to put their money because that's where the change is really needed. Lots to go, and a lot of this is going to depend exactly as to who's going to be involved in this and, and as you say, a game plan here going forward. Uh, and I, I agree with your point totally, Doctor, at this stage. It's not just the, the people sitting around that board table. Uh, there has to be a change in attitude right through the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen one, the CEO, it, it doesn't stop with the CEO. We have other individuals who've been working in that organization probably for, for years who've been a part of the culture. And so, you know, whoever comes in as a new strong leader uh, as the CEO level has to do that culture review and, and is going to have to probably make some other big changes. I think we need to see some new positions in, in the organization. How about somebody who's actually in charge of culture? Uh, and building that, you know, at a very prominent level in the organization so that it, it has meaning and it has budget behind it. Doctor, uh, certainly great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. I always appreciate it. Always great to talk with you, Bill. Thank you. Dr. Ann Pegararo, who is the uh, co-director of the National Research Network for Gender Equity in Sport. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another uh, investigation which is uh, ongoing, and we already know about the Heritage Committee investigating Hockey Canada, uh, but the public inquiry into Ottawa's use of the Emergencies Act uh, during February's Freedom Convoy uh, gets underway tomorrow. Uh, Brenda Molina-Navidad has details. The inquiry will look into the decision-making of the Liberal government, which used the emergency declaration to grant extraordinary but temporary powers aimed at ending the nearly three weeks long blockades in Ottawa and at borders. Police and city officials described a state of lawlessness downtown, and people living in the area were increasingly frustrated with the noise and disruption of protesters with trucks blaring their horns day and night. Dozens of witnesses are expected to testify over six weeks of hearings, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, and Finance Minister Christia Freeland. A final report will be filed to Parliament next year. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian Press. And we need to get some answers about what happened. I mean, we saw it, many of us with our own eyes, we saw the TV coverage of this as it was happening. Uh, We talked to people that were there. Uh, It's fascinating to watch some of the social media uh, commentaries about this right now. If you believe some of the stuff you see on Twitter, you'd think that this was nothing more than just a bunch of, you know, patriotic Canadians who are just expressing their displeasure with the government policy. Uh, They seem oblivious to the fact that there were many people in that organization there in Ottawa uh, that we're talking about overthrowing the government and uh, and a number of other things uh, that have to be done. So we need to get down to the answers and not the rhetoric, uh, which is why I think this inquiry is so important. To talk about this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Michael Kemka. Michael is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us on the, the eve of what I think is going to be a very important uh, inquiry into what happened this past February. Yes, here we go, Bill. It's going to be a big one. Uh, because we, we, I think we need to get some clarity on this. And, and, and again, uh, I guess in some situations, Professor, I mean, uh, you know, we, th- that was February, this is October. We've had a lot going on in our lives between then and now. But I think we need to remind ourselves about the severity of what went on in February and, and the significance of it. Uh, and the fact that even as this was happening, even as this, this controversial Emergencies Act was enacted by the federal government, uh, there was overwhelming support right across the country for this because people were watching this and saying, look, enough of this already. Well, that is that is absolutely the case. I mean, the, the polling that was done uh, was very sophisticated. It did show that early on Canadians did have a significant amount of sympathy for the stated objectives of protesting COVID-19 issues, even if they didn't agree necessarily with the methods the the taking control of the streets, the blockading of borders. There was some sympathy for the stated cause. But as this thing evolved on the ground, we found weapons in Coots, Alberta. The border blockades were costing the economy hundreds of millions of dollars. The city of Ottawa was ground to a halt such that people were not able to go about their daily business, including things like getting to pharmacies and getting to work and so forth. The public opinion turned on not only the tactics, but the underlying messages of some streams of the protest to change government, overthrow government, remove government interference in the lives of people to create a so-called free country where everybody can more or less do whatever they like. This fell on deaf ears and there was significant support for, if not the Emergencies Act, a coordinated police and security response to clear the streets. 
And and I think that's important to put this in perspective. And and I, I completely concur as we talked about this and and watched uh, the reporting that was going on uh, during that weekend and and number of the people that were watching this and first you know uh, first eye version of it, bird's eye version of what was going on. Uh, I, I think a lot of Canadians were very upset about this. And, and again, as, as you've mentioned on previous times you've been on the program, nobody is saying that everybody there was a subversive. Uh, nobody was saying that everybody there was meant to overthrow the government. But those elements were there. And we do also know that there were elements of the extreme right wing that, uh, if not organized this thing, at least uh, they, they, they piggybacked onto this. Uh, and they had their own agenda, too. I mean, so th- th- there, there was no unanimity about why people were there. They were just there for various reasons. There were many layers. And in fact, some of the honorable protesters, uh, perhaps not at the time, but maybe now that there's been a few months, have come to realize they were in fact being manipulated in many ways by the elements of the far right who were using this protest, using COVID-19 as a hook issue on which to hang and push their more radical far right ideas and agendas. And this is nothing new. This is what radical, ideologically motivated, violent extremists, whether on the far right or the far left, always do. They find issues that people are upset about or excited about, and they use those issues to get to people to try to then pull them into the darker corners of their ideology. So some this happens, it was COVID-19. They tried it before with issues of immigration, with issues of fuel tariffs, You could go on with a long list of issues. This is how radical ideologues do their business and have done it for 50 years. And and in this particular situation, uh, we're we're going to get into some of the nuts and bolts on this as this inquiry goes on. And it's going to take some time, obviously, uh, when we look at the number of people that are going to be called to testify in this situation. Uh, But it's, it's... the implementation of the act in and of itself, and was it justified, I guess, is going to be part of that. Uh, and the chain of, of events that uh, the government is suggesting occurred for them to do this. Uh, and I understand the bit, and I think you and I have talked about this uh, in the past. This is a heavy piece of legislation. The Emergencies Act is a pretty heavy-duty legislation. And I know uh, there are a lot of people that are saying, well, you know, were they justified in taking away individual rights? And, and that's a legitimate question that needs to be answered. I get that. But I think part B of that question that I hope is also answered here is who was actually impacted by this? Uh, you know, were, were there swaths of people that were negatively impacted that had their, their rights trampled on? Or was that a philosophical question? Well, this is what's important about the Emergencies Act. It is a better instrument than the old War Measures Act. The old War Measures Act was like a binary. You either turned it on or it was off. And when you turned it on... Everybody in the country's civil liberties were suspended and the government could more or less do whatever it thought necessary to restore order in any given moment. The Emergencies Act is more of a continuum. When you declare it on, it still functions within the charter. You don't suspend everybody's rights. The government is forced to go to the existing law books and pull out a few tools that they think would be helpful to amp up for a limited time to apply in certain circumstances. So here we saw, all right, the government declared certain areas illegal protest zones, such that it was an offense to be there. They could clear that space. They could freeze accounts for people who were either donating or present in those zones. The government will have to justify to this commission whether the specific tools they pulled out of the law books were appropriate to the circumstances but it is much more focused than anything that would have been done under the old War Measures Act ever would have been. 
And, and I guess there's a process involved here, too, that I think irritated me and, and many other Canadians, judging uh, from the polling that was done by some very reputable agencies uh, at that particular time, Professor, uh, is I get that, okay? You maybe don't agree with the vaccine mandate. You may not agree with the mask mandate. I, You know, th that's fine, but they're going to be, as we've talked about in the past, you're free to make your choices in this country, but there are going to be ramifications to those choices. And and there are some people that just don't want any ramifications. They think they should be able to do what they want, when they want, with you know, regardless of, of, of what that may ensue. And that that's one element. Uh, the other is maybe they just don't like the government. Maybe they disagree with them getting elected. Maybe they don't like the prime minister. Lots of people in this country that are like that. We saw the F. Trudeau flags there that, that many of them still persist these days. But that's not the way we, we, we deal with a government we don't like in this country. I mean, we don't do what they did just a few months before that in, in Washington, just storm the Capitol and try to overthrow the government. And there were some people in Ottawa, not all of them, but some people in Ottawa that were there during that protest uh, that wanted to do just that. And and that's totally against our democratic processes. And And listen... We have to, I think, be cognizant of that and be cognizant of the fact that there are people that are subversive, that, that have that mindset, and will look for tools to try to, to get people on their side to, to do something as, as heinous as that. And we can't underestimate that threat here in Canada. We've always thought this is not our problem. It's an American issue, Eastern European issue. It is a Canadian issue. There are people on the far right and left who have an agenda to push. They like chaos. They would like to foment or speed up some kind of revolution that they think would be better than liberal capitalism or whatever their ideology may be. They're out there and they're very sophisticated. They know how to manipulate issues and information to pull more people into their orbit. And they got in on what they saw a very good thing going in this freedom convoy and manipulated it in that direction. This is what the freedom of the uh, inquiry must now get into what information did the government have about these groups and their involvement in the freedom convoy and political leaders have to in a sense really step up here and provide that leadership and provide that information because one of the biggest functions of an inquiry of this kind is public education and bringing things to light you know we say the best disinfectant is sunlight of course it is but it is not in the nature of politicians to volunteer information they're going to be forced to do so in the context of this inquiry. They can't hide the way that they do in the House of Commons. Well, and, and that's going to be a key element. I mean, there are some who are skeptical and say, you know, maybe this was not justified. Uh, and, and I guess, as you mentioned, the best way to deal with that is transparency. I mean, if, if the prime minister and, and the number of cabinet ministers, uh, including uh, Minister Mendocino and, and Freeland and others that are going to be testifying, if they simply just, you know, fall back and say, that's sorry, that's cabinet confidentiality, I can't discuss that, we're not going to learn anything. And, and that's only going to increase the skepticism. It will do exactly that. It will increase the skepticism. And that's why, I'm sorry to say, it is the responsibility of the chair of this inquiry, Justice Rouleau, to push the government on that question. It would be uncomfortable for him to do so, but it is an essential part of his public service to say to government, you may only hold things back where it is truly in the public interest to do so and not the government interest to do so. So if you've got information about some active terror cell and you don't want that terror cell to know that we've got that, you may hold that back in certain circumstances in the public interest. But if it's just embarrassing to the government, too bad, it has to get out there. That's going to be very hard for Justice Rouleau to do, but it is essential.
he's a tough judge. I think he's up to it. Well, and and again, as you say, you've got to rule with an iron fist here, and and both sides. Uh, I guess are, are, are going to have to be responsible here, Professor. I mean, you know, you, you've seen some of the editorial comments about this, about the prime minister's really risking, you know, his his reputation, such as it is, uh, by going through and, and testifying. So is Pierre Polyev, uh, you know, who consorted with people that uh, at this protest, uh, many of whom were, you know, anarchists that wanted to overthrow the government. I mean, everybody's reputation is on the line here, including some of the protesters, including police, uh, including the OPP, the RCMP. I mean, uh, the only way we're going to get, I guess, any sense of, of, of what happened and why it happened uh, is, is if everybody is open and honest with their answers here. And that's going to be the value of the design of this inquiry. It is taking all of these players, the politicians, the security professionals, the bureaucrats, people who are very skilled at speaking in their usual environments, especially the House of Commons, which we know has really disintegrated into almost like a pantomime. You know, people yelling, screaming, waggling the authoritative finger, the indignant hand on the hip. I mean, it's almost like a play when you watch the House of Commons these days. In an inquiry, you will not be permitted to behave like that. You will be forced, essentially, by the judge to behave as a political leader and provide clear and fulsome answers. I think Canadians watching this inquiry should get used to politicians behaving in that fashion and demand that when they're out of the inquiry, they stick to that standard. In other words, we should get used to what we see in this inquiry and demand we change this pantomime that we've been seeing in the House of Commons, which only alienates people from democracy. Are you comfortable with the, the list? I think there's over 65 witnesses that are set to testify. We mentioned the Prime Minister and a number of his cabinet members, uh, Mayor Jim Watson, I guess uh, soon-to-be former Mayor uh, Jim Watson, uh, and a, a number of people that were involved in the protest themselves, uh, some of whom have since been arrested. Uh, is, is this all-encompassing? Is this going to turn over every rock that needs to be turned over? It's going to turn over a lot, but not all of them. We've only got six weeks to get through at least 65 witnesses. In a sense... Uh, it is probably valuable to have that tight time frame because it's going to force speakers to really focus on their most important message and their most important evidence. We're not going to have any filibustering allowed here where people can go on and on and misdirect and, you know, essentially try to bore the public into not paying attention. So we're not going to get to every rock, but then again, it falls on Justice Rouleau to focus us on the most important rocks. What went wrong in policing in Ottawa? What went wrong with municipal, provincial, and federal responses and coordination? I am a little disappointed not to see much representation from provincial government on his witness list, Rulo's witness list. I can't imagine why we wouldn't hear from Premier Doug Ford and the uh, Solicitor General at the time, Sylvia Jones, who obviously would have been extremely important in that line of government communication. I'm hoping there's a logic that I am not able to... Uh, to see myself right now that emerges, I'd like to hear an explanation for why we're not hearing from them. Well, and again, I know we're just about out of time here, but the process itself, I feel comfortable with too. How many times have we seen this become a political circus uh, simply because it's the politicians that are running it and and it becomes very partisan. And, and as you say, they put time limits on there. We saw that happen uh, during the Senate investigations, of course, where uh, Bill Barr, who is the attorney general, just basically ragged the puck. He knew there's a 15 minute time limit and he just repeated questions and repeated answers until his time was up. Uh, they're not going to be able to play that game here, I would think. No. And uh, I think if we look to the example of the January 6th hearings, the United States, 
even some of the most skilled, if you want to put it that way, uh, con artists and nonsense spinners were held to answering questions in those proceedings. And if they could do it with those players who are far more sophisticated than our own politicians and spin doctors in Canada, we should have success here. But again, it will really fall on the shoulders of Justice Rouleau. Um, I think the weight of the moment is probably upon him and he will be well prepared to hold people to the essential questions. Well, it all starts tomorrow, of course, and uh, we'll be watching with great interest. Michael, as always, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you kindly. That's uh, Professor Michael Kempke from uh, University of Ottawa, a uh, associate professor of criminology. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's electricity system operator says an expected surge in demand over the next few years means the province is going to have to put in some new natural gas generation in order to avoid rotating blackouts. We don't want to go through those days again, do we? Uh, Chuck Farmer is uh, with the independent electricity system operator, says that natural gas is uniquely positioned to meet the demand since it's reliable and flexible. And there is currently no like-for-like replacement for natural gas that can provide all of the services that natural gas can provide. It is dispatchable. It can be ramped up and down to follow the load. And if necessary, in periods of extreme conditions, can run for extended periods of time. Okay, that's one side of the argument. Uh, To put this in in practice is one thing, but uh, I think we need to look at both sides of this and the implications. Uh, There's a great op-ed piece uh, on the uh, TVO website, tvo.org, that talks about this. Uh, Will Ontario's next natural gas plants also be its last? Uh, The author is uh, John Michael McGrath, who, of course, is a digital media producer with TVO, and he joins us on the program to talk about this and uh, whether or not this is the proper solution. Uh, John, great to have you back with us. By the way, very timely uh, with uh, this submission, uh, because there's an ongoing discussion. I guess we could even refer to it as a debate right now, but how we, uh, I think there's a consensus that, yeah, there's going to be a shortfall here. Is this the solution? Do we go back to nuclear? There's, There's a lot of pros and cons to both sides of this, isn't there? There is. And, and you know, <laughs> as with so many things in the energy space, uh, people have lots of very strong opinions. And, uh, you know, the, the government is facing a, a really uh, hard problem here uh, after really more than a decade of electricity consumption in Ontario not growing very quickly at all. We now seem to be entering a phase where uh, due to a number of, of uh, things, including uh, new industrial investment, but also uh, electric cars and uh, you know other uh, changes in people's electricity consumption, uh, you know the demand for electricity is increasing again, and so that pretty sort of <laughs> commonsensically uh, requires uh, that we build new power plants. And uh, so the government has already announced that it is uh, looking at keeping some kind of nuclear option running at the Pickering nuclear plant that had been slated to close uh, permanently in 2025. It now will get kept open at least until 2026. But last week's announcement was about uh, natural gas and the the, the primary uh, provincial regulator for this uh, question saying that uh, in the, as you said in the clip that you played, uh, at the moment they just don't see uh, a, an option for anything but natural gas uh, to to meet the specific needs uh, for the grid. 
And Mr. Farmer, in the clip we just played there, you know, presented a pretty compelling argument. To, you know, here's why this is not a bad idea. As a matter of fact, probably the best Bible idea that we have right now. Uh, the, the immediate answer to that, though, John, is, but that's a fossil fuel. We're not supposed to be doing this anymore. We're, isn't this a step backwards? Right. And certainly uh, both uh, the Green Party and numerous other environmental groups were very quick to say that uh, this is, a, as you say, a step backwards, that, that this is unnecessary. And, you know, let's be clear, right? You know, power plants are uh, very long-lived pieces of infrastructure, right? Uh, hell, uh, the, the Pickering nuclear plant has lasted for 40 or 50 years. Um, you know, these power plants are likely to last for at least 20 and probably 30 or more years. So a decision to build a new natural gas power plant is a decision to keep burning a fossil fuel for decades. And and that's really the, the core of the environmental argument against it. Um, at the same time, the 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 fact is that while the energy uh, technologies available to us are changing very rapidly right now between the declining cost of solar and wind power and also the declining cost in battery electricity storage. These are all really exciting things that are happening in the electricity space right now. Uh, the concern for the IESO and for the government is that uh, batteries are not able to uh, replace the functions that a natural gas plant can right now. Uh, now, the the big asterisk in all this is basically, you know, we will probably not be making the same decision in 2030 that we are in 2022 because the ISO is really looking at how do they cover the gap between now and the next five years or so. Well, and therein lies the crisis. I mean, I, I saw Mr. Schreiner's comments. Mike Schreiner, of course, is the uh, leader of the Ontario Green Party. Uh, and uh, he says it's time for the Premier to admit that his short-sighted anti-climate agenda is hurting people and the province's economy. Uh, point taken, and, and there's some validity to what Mr. Schreiner is saying, and, and the Ford government did turn their back on an awful lot of these green projects when they first got into office, not this election, but the one previous to this. But that was then, this is now. Even if you agree with what Mike Schreiner is saying, I guess, at this stage, John, you can't just flick a switch and say, okay, we're going to go back to wind and solar. That takes a lot of money and a lot of time. Uh, and in the meantime, the crisis is looming. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> the environmental movement in, in Ontario is certainly, uh, they're under no obligation to to say nice things about uh, Doug Ford or uh, his government. But, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I they do don't. Think, <laughs> no, exactly. Um, but, but I do think you have to at least grapple with the fact that by the time Doug Ford was elected in 2018, uh, the electricity policies of the previous government had made renewables very unpopular. And I don't think the next government is going to embrace renewables. Like, I, I honestly do think that we're looking at like a generation of uh, Ontario governments, regardless of party, uh, staying away from renewable power because it is just that politically toxic. And uh, electricity planning in this province is, is deeply politicized and, and it has been for certainly as long as I've been alive. But, you know, the the problem going forward is if you're not going to use renewable resources, or at least you're not going to build any new ones, uh, and, and this government isn't, um, what do you do next? Um, they, they are looking at storage. Uh, you know, battery technology is, is as I say, it's, it's uh, coming down in price rapidly, and the ISO is actually going to be looking to build more battery storage in terms of uh, megawatts installed. Uh, than they are looking at in terms of new natural gas capacity with this latest announcement. So it is a it is a big move. It's just that at the moment, um, they are starting from a very low level and uh, 
uh, it, it just will not be able to stabilize the grid uh, in, in the way that natural gas can, uh, you know, reliably. Because of course, you know, once you've emptied a battery, it's empty, and you have to wait until you can charge it again. With a natural gas plant, if you need to run it longer, you can just run it longer because the the natural gas pipeline is right there. And and again, there there are other options here, and and I I get where these guys are coming from. Uh, you know, Doug Ford canceled a lot of stuff when he first became premier, you know, including the EV program. And he's since had an epiphany about that. And he's 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 in, you know, he's all in on that right now with the money and the investment that his government has made in that. Uh, and that's all well and good. But I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for him to get back into renewables, because, as you say, uh, the case, the business case for it, uh, the environmental case is there. The business case, not so much. Right. And, uh, you know, this is uh, to your point about, uh, you know, this, this government sort of changing its tune on electric vehicles. I think this is um, a- another, uh, you know, humorous note to all of this. Right. The, the, <laughs> you know, the government is, in fact, looking for ways that they can address uh, uh, cl- climate emissions in the electricity sector. Um, they they came into office in 2018, really not concerned about that at all. They are looking at, uh, you know, e- one of the reasons we're talking about keeping Pickering open is because it is a, a low pollution form of electricity. Um, and, you know, with electric vehicles and now with electricity uh, supply, uh, and, and you could also point to the investments they're making in uh, clean steel production, you know, the Tories are eventually finding their way to these kinds of uh, policies that, frankly, they they rejected almost, you know, without debate four years ago um and it's it's a sign that you know okay yeah like doug ford is is capable of changing his mind but it's also a sign of just how quickly the market is moving and they really are responding to the interests of uh, various sectors in the business community well yeah and, and your point's well taken i mean let's not be you know silly about this uh his his decision to cancel a lot of these things when he first got elected might have been very, very based on political philosophy uh, be that as it might, uh, and I don't think he was visited by three ghosts one night and said, "Okay, well, I'm going to EVs." You know, I've, I've changed. It's a, it's a brave new world out there. Uh, the technology evolved, uh, and 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 there were companies that were ready, willing, and able to invest an awful lot of money in this. So, I mean, that business case was there, and he he would have been naive, I think, and short sighted, uh, not to jump on that bandwagon. And and you know, hopefully, we're going to reap the benefits of that. But when you get into renewables like this, uh, as I say, a lot of people are still hesitant about this. And a lot of their opposition to things like these plants and even the nuclear plants is based on philosophy. And I think you and I talked about this a couple of months ago. It was, it was it Denmark and one of those Scandinavian countries. Uh, the Green Party in that country actually came out and said, you know what, nuclear probably is going to be part of the solution. And, and I know that was much to the chagrin of, of, of a number of people that just on a philosophical level are disposed to this. But uh, when we're in a situation like we are here in Ontario, as you point out in the piece on, on the TVO webpage, all options have to be on the table right now. And you've got to look at how much is this going to cost and how effective is it going to be. And there is a business case right now for the gas-fired plants, notwithstanding the environmental concerns. Right, yeah, in, in some ways, I think the bigger risk to the province right now, and I don't want to dismiss the, the pollution costs of natural gas, but uh, you know, the bigger unknown at the moment is what is going to be the financial cost going forward. As I said, the natural gas plant is going to run for decades. And you know, even just look at how much natural gas uh, costs have increased um, in the last five years, say, and uh, you 
you can understand just how volatile a commodity this can be. And then you, you know, factor in things like Europe reacting to the war in Ukraine by investing very heavily in liquefied natural gas, which they will then import from places like the US, which is also where Ontario gets some of its natural gas from. Um, you know, this is going to be a commodity that is going to get more expensive uh, over the next several decades and not less. Um, and in, <clears throat> even if, for example, uh, we have a change in federal politics and you get rid of the, the, the federal carbon tax, right? I, I I don't know what the future holds, but I, I would not bet on natural gas power getting cheaper uh, over the lifetime of these new power plants. What about nuclear? I mean, and you've done a lot of research into this, as you always do when, before you post one of these uh, op-ed pieces. Uh, as you mentioned, they've given uh, Pickering a stay of execution for another year. Uh, they, uh, essentially, the energy, energy minister says it's so they can study the viability of, uh, of, of rebooting that, which could actually get us another 30 or 40 years, we're told. But that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, are they in for that? Well, the good news is that, you know, Ontario is already refurbishing the Darlington nuclear plants yeah. and the Bruce nuclear plant. Um, so if they then do the Pickering nuclear plant uh, after they've completed the Bruce, uh, we should have a pretty clear idea of how much that's going to cost. Like we will have done it enough that we will have learned how to do it reasonably well. There are some particular details, fussy details about Pickering that might make it different. But it, in general, I think, you know, so far, most of the assessments have been that while it is expensive in total for uh, Darlington and Bruce, you're talking about $25 billion uh, that are going to be recouped over decades in electricity costs. Um, by the time those are done, we, we should know how to do Pickering pretty well. Um, you know, the government is also looking at what are called small modular reactors uh, that they're looking to build another one uh, on the Darlington site. Uh, potentially, they could build, I believe, up to four of those, but though that is still speculative um and the idea there is instead of building these massive jumbo-sized nuclear reactors um instead you would build something that is small potentially you could just build it in a factory and then plunk it down where you need it um and that gets away from a lot of the costs uh, overruns that have happened historically in nuclear potentially hypothetically nobody has really done this yet and ontario is uh, in fact positioned to be a, a leader in the world if this goes forward but um, that one is still uh, very much an open question. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, by the end of this government's four-year mandate, uh, a lot of decisions will be baked in uh, that will mean that, you know, Ontario currently gets about 60% of its electricity from uh, nuclear power. Uh, that number is likely to go be higher uh, by the end of Doug Ford's second term uh, than it was certainly uh, at the start of his first one. Yeah, I think that only makes sense, uh, you know, to move in that direction. And I know the cost is, is out, you know, it's, it's prohibitive, but uh, we've done pretty well by nuclear uh, over the years, haven't we? I mean, you know, it, it was really, uh, you know, the, the, the onsite of the Pickering plant that, that got us off coal. I mean, that gave us the, the path that, okay, we can do this, and it's not going to have that negative impact that people had anticipated. Uh, and, and there's a benefit to this, and, and as you say, we're starting to get into that. It was just this morning. Uh, it was announced that, uh, that one of the major uranium ma manufacturers is hooked up with Westinghouse now. Uh, and again, that's a, a big plus for the nuclear energy and for the nuclear industry uh, that I think a lot of uh, people in business are seeing this as part of the long-term solution to this as well. And, and usually 
you know, business moves and governments react to that and usually jump on board as they did with EVs. So I, I think that you're right. I think the, the, the tone is being set here and the foundation is being set for nuclear to, ha- to make a comeback. Uh, it's not going to be costly, but it could be cost effective in the long run. You know, it's a really interesting story from my perspective, because uh, certainly in the U.S., you see there's still a very emotionally uh, fraught argument about the uh, use or, or uh, expansion of nuclear power. Um, and and you sometimes see the, the tone of the argument. People try to import it into Canada. And, and I, I just I honestly think it's really funny because like the nuclear argument, at least in Ontario, was settled like five years ago, basically. The Liberals decided to refurbish Darlington and Bruce. I don't think they had a lot of good options by the time, or at least a lot of alternatives. You just can't replace that much power quickly. Um, but, you know, like nuclear is going to continue to be a part of Ontario's grid for at least another 30 to 40 years uh, into the 2060s. That that decision is baked in. And so like in a very real way in Canadian politics, the nuclear guys won. And I, I think they don't always understand how much they have won because they can still be kind of chippy about the, uh, <laughs> arguments about renewables versus uh, 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 nuclear versus, you know, everything. Um it, like in in a very real way, the decision has been made. the The battle has been won, and the question now is like, how much more nuclear do we build? Not how much do we rely on it? Because, as you say, th- that industry and, and the way that that is being delivered is also evolving uh, with some of these announcements we're hearing right now too. So, uh, as they say in the business, stay tuned. More to come on this. Uh, go to the uh, to the webpage uh, tvo.org/slash/article. Uh, will Ontario's next natural gas plants also be its last? It's a great piece, and I think it puts a, the debate into perspective here for us. Uh, John Michael McGrath, as always, John, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate this. Thank you. John Michael McGrath, of course, is a digital media producer at TVO, and uh, you can go to the webpage and see some of his insights into some of these key issues. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.